Welcome to Mosaic Podcast. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We're in... In a series at the moment, looking through uh, the book of Joshua. So if you're new to church or new to Mosaic, what we do each Sunday is we take uh, a portion of the Bible, <coughs> a portion of scripture, and we, we look at it to see what it says to us about who the God of the Bible is and what a relationship with him uh, means for us today. And two weeks ago, we started uh, this series looking at some highlights, really, from the beginning of the book of Joshua. And a guy called Pete Dre came and he opened up the series for us, looking at chapter one. He did a brilliant job just setting the scene for Joshua. Um, so if you missed that preach, it's on the podcast. You can catch up. Really recommend for you guys to do that. And then last week, we took a break from the series, but we're starting back in it again today. But before we start in that, I want us to do a quick quiz bit of interaction. So there are going to be six pictures on the screen. Can anybody uh, name any of those people? Toby. Alice Cooper and Brian Welsh, top left, bottom right. Jason Robinson, top right. Yeah, English rugby player. Ch- uh, yeah, Charlie Sheen, top middle, actor, TV star. Corin Bailey Ray, bottom middle. Does anybody know the bottom left? If you do then we should chat about U.S. politics. It is not. It's uh, a lady called Norma McCorvey. Anybody know who she is? She is um, the Jane Roe of the famous Roe versus Wade legal debate in the 1970s, um, which legalized abortion in America. So if you're a, a politics buff like myself, that's quite interesting. And if you're not... Then it's not. Um, so this is a pretty diverse group of people, uh, different uh, ages, different races, sexes, interests, backgrounds. Anybody want to hazard a guess what one thing they all have in common? They're all humans. They are. That is true. <laughs> Anything else? Come on. Any guesses? Yeah. Well done, Alex. If in doubt, Sunday school answer. These, every one of these profess to be a Christian. So everyone would say they have put their faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he's the son of God and he's the saviour of their lives. That's a pretty diverse group of people. I think if you met Alice Cooper or Brian Welsh especially, Christian wouldn't naturally be the first thing that came to your mind, especially when you think of the more stereotypical pictures of Christians. If we go to the next one, <laughs> Justin Welby, Socks and Sandals... I personally have nothing against socks and sandals. I think just keep your feet warm. But um, that's maybe the slightly more stereotypical picture of uh, Christianity or the church. But that first group of people really helps to show that the church, God's people across the world, worldwide, is such a diverse group of people. All races, ages, socioeconomic status, backgrounds, nations, all of them are involved and brought into the church. The church is home to some of the most unlikely people imaginable. Why is that? Why is the church not just a homogenous group that just reaches just men or just women or just Westerners or just Global South people or just rich people or just poor people? Why is it something that involves people from all over the spectrum, if you like? 
Because the church of God represents something of the God of the Bible. The fact that he is a a God who loves the whole world, not just little parts of the world. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, the whole world, all of it. Uh, He is a God who desires all people to be saved, not just one particular group of people or one particular subsection of society. He desires all people to come to faith. And he is a God who says anyone who puts their faith in me can approach me with freedom and confidence. So when you look at the church across the world, you see it's home to all these different types of people, regardless of their background, regardless of anything that they've done, or anything that they once believed. The church shows us that God saves the most unlikely people into his family. And maybe you're sat there going, I'm probably one of those really unlikely people. Nobody thought that I was going to come into a relationship with God. Well, Joshua 2, I think, is a story that shows us exactly the same thing. I think it's a story that shows us the most unlikely people are welcomed into a relationship with God and into the people of God. God's offer of salvation and relationship is given to all, no matter how far away a person may seem. And so, as we go through this story, my real prayer is two things. For some of you, I really hope this story just stirs your faith for what God is able to do in the lives of the people that you live around or that you know. And you think, there's no way they're ever going to be interested in God. There's no way they're ever going to come into a relationship with God. I want you to have renewed faith that God's actually able to reach any and every person. And for others of you in the room, you might be like... As I go, as we go through the story, you might be like, man, maybe I'm one of the people that God is trying to reach. You might realize today that God is extending an offer of relationship and salvation for you today, regardless of how unlikely you think that might be. So we're going to pick up the story in uh, chapter 2. To give you the gist of the story so far, um, God's people are journeying towards a land that God had promised to give them where they could settle and build houses and start families and enjoy peace. Um, But this promised land is currently occupied by lots of other nations and they're basically enemies of God's people. And God had promised, I will, I will drive out these, these nations and these other people ahead of you so that you can take um, the land. And the people are right up to the edge of the land, but they've not entered it yet. And in chapter 1, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Joshua has uh, taken over as the leader of God's people from a man called Moses. And Joshua's task is basically to lead the people into the land uh, that God had promised to give them. So that's where we are in the story. We're going to do something slightly different because we're not going to read the story uh, before uh, we then look at it. We're going to uh, look at it as we go because otherwise we're going to lose something of the drama of what's going on in this story. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2. If not, don't worry, all the verses will be on the screen behind me. So we're starting in the first part of verse 1. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So we've got a map. The people are on the right-hand side in Abel Shittin, and they are going to cross the river eventually and go to Jericho. Now, Jericho is a big city. It's the main fortress that they're going to come across in the first part of uh, their journey. And Joshua's like, we need to know what we're up against. So he picks two of his guys and he says, I want you to go and spy out the land. And I want you to go and look at Jericho and see what we're up against. 
So, verse 1, the end of it. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. You've got to pause. What's going on there? Joshua says, go and check out the land and Jericho. So the guys go, okay, we'll go to the prostitute's house. Why do they decide to do that? What, what's their thinking behind making that decision? I want to suggest something here. I want to suggest the big news is not that they've gone to the house of a prostitute, but they've gone to a house that's inside the city walls of Jericho. Jericho is this huge city. It's got walls all around it. The spies could have gone and tried to spy out Jericho from outside the walls, but they're not really going to get a lay of the land. They're not going to understand the people. They're not going to know what's going on. So they take this crazy bold move of going, we're going to go inside the walls. Where can they go inside the walls that isn't going to arouse too much suspicion? They're going to go to the place that most people traveling into Jericho would make their first port of call, which is the house of Rahab, the house of a prostitute, which maybe tells you a little bit of something about the city of Jericho. That's what type of city it is. That's my suggestion. You can disagree with me, and that's totally fine. But these men go to Rahab's house, but to be honest, immediately, it looks like it was a stupid move. It looks like it was a bad call, because in verses 2 and 3, it says, the king of Jericho was told, look, Some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So the men are spotted. They're reported to the king and he sends a message to Rahab. He sends his troops to Rahab demanding that she gives the men up. So the lives of these two Israelite spies are now in the hands of Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute. What is Rahab going to decide to do? And what do we know about Rahab? Because for the two spies who are hiding in her house, this is how they would have viewed Rahab. She is morally unclean and unacceptable as a person. She is a prostitute. Her lifestyle is not one of purity or holiness or acting in line with God's commands. In fact, she's the opposite of all of that. She is a political and ethnic enemy. She's a Canaanite. So she's a member of a nation that hates the people of God. She is not somebody who is likely to show them any kindness or any mercy. And she is spiritually far off. She's been brought up to worship the Canaanite gods, idolatrous gods, false gods, not the God of the Israelites, not the God of the Bible. Put simply, Rahab is really not the person these guys want to have their their lives in the hands of. She is not on their side. In addition, if she's found to be harboring two Israelite spies... Uh, by the king's men. She's going to be charged with treason. She's going to be tortured. She's going to be killed. So Rahab's got nothing to gain by hiding these spies and not giving them up. It really is a no-brainer what Rahab should do here. She should get the spies, hand them over, and go back to her life. But verses 4 through 7 tell us something different. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yeah, the, main, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. 
Uh, I don't know which way they went. Uh, Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Rahab does something completely crazy. She hides the spies and then she lies to the king's messengers and sends them off on this false trail so that the spies' lives are protected. And then verse 7 ends by telling us the city gate was shut, meaning there's no way for the spies to escape. There's no way out of the city anymore. Their lives are still in the hands of Rahab. But now the spies and us, we're left with this other question. Why on earth has Rahab just done what she's done? If the king finds out she's dead, the spies could kill her because they're not on her side. They're her enemies. Why has she put her life on the line for these two men? What's she thinking? What is Rahab's motivation? So let's read on. Verses 8 through 13. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the sea, uh, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. So Rahab goes up to the roof where these men are hiding and she says... Everyone in this city, everyone in this land has heard about your God. They've heard what he did 40 years ago when you were slaves in Egypt, how he brought you out of slavery by parting the waters of the Red Sea. And how when the Egyptian army, this superpower army, tried to follow you, he brought the waters back down on them and completely destroyed them. And everyone's heard what your God did to protect you when you came out of Egypt and you were attacked by other nations, how he helped you to defeat them. And now everyone knows that you're camped 20 miles away and that we're next on the list. And everyone's courage has failed and everyone's hearts have melted in fear. But not mine, says Rahab. Not mine. Rahab's courage hasn't failed By hiding these spies, she has done probably the most courageous thing that she has ever done in her life. Why did she do it? Well, let's try and imagine what Rahab's life has been. So she's grown up hearing about the Canaanite gods, the false gods, the man-made gods. And these gods had demands on the people. They demanded that people would sacrifice their own children in fire in order to please them or appease them. I wonder how many times Rahab had got pregnant by being a prostitute 
and then had to sacrifice a child in the fire to a God that she was meant to believe in. These Canaanite gods also demanded that women were forced to be prostitutes. And I wonder if that's why Rahab is a prostitute in the story. She's grown up believing gods don't care about us. Gods don't love us. Gods aren't for us. Gods don't protect us. They use us and they abuse us. And that's how I understand God to be. And then this story of another God starts circulating in Jericho. She hears about this God of the Bible. She sees that he's completely different to these Canaanite gods. He loves his people. He protects his people. He brings them out of slavery rather than putting them into slavery. He treats them as his children as opposed to demanding they sacrifice their children. And I think faith starts to stir in Rahab's heart. But maybe there's a way for me to meet this God. Maybe there's a way for me to become part of his people. Maybe there's a way for me to escape this life and join with them and worship their God. So she risks it all and all of her family's life at the same time. She risks it all and she decides to hide these spies to show, I want to switch allegiance. I want to switch allegiance from these false gods of Canaan to the true God of the Israelites, the true God of the Bible. She's like a, she's like a spy in the Cold War saying, I'm defecting, I'm going over to the other side and I know that my life is on the line, but I think it's worth it. These verses say Rahab shows kindness to these spies. The word uh, for kindness here is kesed. And more fully translated, it describes this kindness as being merciful, loving kindness. Rahab has spared the lives of these men, but at the risk of her own life. And she now asks them to show her that same merciful, loving kindness in return. To spare her life and the lives of her family when the people of God come and take the city, which Rahab believes they are going to do. She's asking them, let me and my family become part of your people. And she's trusting, Rahab here is trusting that the people of God, his representatives on earth, will spare her life, not because of who she is, because, but because they are ambassadors and representatives of the God of the Bible. And she says, he loves people, he protects people, he's for people, maybe he'll do that to me. But now her life is in the hands of the spies. The tables have turned. How are the two men going to respond to Rahab? This morally unclean, unacceptable, political, ethnic enemy who's spiritually, in their eyes, an idolater. How do they respond when she says, I want to become part of your people? Verse 14, they say, our lives for your lives. The men assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. I think these two spies at this moment are just blown away by her faith. They're blown away by the fact that she's heard about their God and she wants to switch sides. So they respond to her request by saying, if you continue to show yourself to be faithful by protecting us, then we will protect you and treat you kindly when we take the city, life for life. Verse 15 and 16, so she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills, 
so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Rohab gets the men out of the city and then she tells them, you need to go to the hills which is further into enemy territory. She says, you need to go there and hide so that when the king's men who are the other way, more towards your camp, when they come back, you'll be able to escape and won't be seen. She puts forward a plan that will protect them and shows herself to be faithful to them. So what does this story reveal to us today? Apart from Rahab takes a risk, apart from she has amazing faith, what can we take from the story for ourselves? I think firstly, we can take from it that we can have faith that the people we think are the least likely to come to God are actually not out of his reach. When these two spies entered the city of Jericho, the last thing, literally the last thing they would have expected was that a Canaanite prostitute would risk her life in order to save theirs because she wanted to join them and worship their God. They just would not have thought that was possible in any way. But remember, the God of the Bible loves the whole world. He wants all people to be saved and he loves to reveal himself to people so that they can have freedom and confidence to come to him. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. For many of us, I think I just want this story to stir our faith that the people in our lives who we think, no chance, they're, too, they're just so disinterested in God. Or they, they just, they're never gonna, they're never gonna respond to Him. They are actually not out of God's reach. There's a, a call for us here as the church to persevere in prayer for those people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus. That they might actually come to faith. They might actually see Him to be the, the one true God who holds the universe in the palm of His hands. And it's also a call for us not to hide away our faith but to let it be seen in the hope, in the hope that when people hear about who our God is, they will want to put their faith in him as well. Last week at the Citywide Celebration, uh, I had a family member who was uh, coming up and helping to look after Sophie and Annabelle. And um, they said they wanted to come to the Citywide Celebration. And as a pastor, my response should be, yes, they don't believe in God. This is going to be great. They're going to come to faith. And my reaction wasn't that. My reaction was, this is going to be so awkward. Um, And they came. And it was really awkward. Um, But what they saw was the church. They saw the community of believers that me and Rianne are part of. And they saw them worshipping wholeheartedly. They saw, it love, they saw them loving and serving one another. They heard the word of God preached. They had a, a, a chance to be prayed for at the end. I have literally no idea what they thought about the whole event. But I do know that the easy option would have been, I oh, know you stay at home today. You stay at home with Sophie or Annabelle. You just look after them. And the scarier option was saying, yeah, come on, come on down to this event that's going to be a bit weird and awkward for you. And uh, I was preparing this preach while that was going on, and it was reminded to me of, it's so easy to just give in to fear. It's so easy to take the easy option out of the belief that God's not going to save them anyway. God's not going to use a citywide celebration to impact somebody in my family. But actually acting in faith, stepping out and going, I don't know what this is going to be like, and it might be super awkward, but I'm just, I'm just going to go for it anyway and trust that God might be able to use it in ways that I can't imagine.
So let's have faith, persevere in prayer, don't hide your faith away. Secondly, I think this story asks us a question. It asks the question, which God do you put your faith in? Because Rahab chooses to trust the God of the Bible over and above the Canaanite gods, the false gods. And it's not quite as obvious to us today. I'm, I'm guessing there's nobody in the room that believes in a God who would want their children to be sacrificed in a fire or forces them into prostitution. But we believe in a lot of other gods. We believe in gods of money, possessions, sex, power, reputation, status, gods that trick us, gods that force us to work way more than we need to so that actually we're not present in the lives of our children and they grow up not recognizing that they have a mom or a dad who loves them and cares for them. Or we go after possessions that are made in uh, dodgy ways in third world countries where actually people aren't treated very well and maybe women are forced to do things that we wouldn't want them to do so that we can have a nice bit of clothing a bit cheaply. The gods of the the past aren't too dissimilar to the gods of today. These false gods that pretend to offer us the world, they pretend to offer us so much and leave us so satisfied by the end really show themselves to be these fickle, empty imitations. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just like, I've tried searching and I've tried looking for meaning and satisfaction in, in the things of this world that are meant to offer everything. But I just feel frustrated. I just feel shortchanged by it all. So you've, you've tried searching for meaning and satisfaction in the pursuit of money. If I just had enough money, it'd be okay. Or in relationships, maybe even in the relationships with your children or in your job or other faiths or inside of yourself, searching for some kind of inner strength to help you through each day. But you've just not found anything that truly gives you lasting security or a meaning in your life that fills you with joy or unconditional love or that satisfaction that you can base your entire life around. And the God of the Bible very gently says you need to repent. You need to turn, which is what that word repent means. You need to turn from the fruitless searching. You need to believe. You need to put your faith in the God of the Bible. Maybe you need to take a similar step to Rahab today, of that switching of allegiance to this God. Or you just feel like, I'm wandering I just keep wandering away in my mind, in my actions, to other things. And you're like, I need to just come back and nail my colours to the mast afresh. And the third thing I think this story shows is, is what it looks like to take that step. To choose to follow the God of the Bible and to continue to trust in the God of the Bible. Because what did Rahab need to do to secure all of this? Well, let's go to verses 17 to 21. Now the men had said to, her, said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them goes outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied, she tied the scarlet cord in the window. 
So Rahab isn't saved by some great feat on her part. She's saved by sheltering under this probably quite thin scarlet cord of rope that she ties in her window. And when the army enters the city in chapter 6, they see the bright red cord and they pass by her house. And her and her whole family are saved from death brought into the people of God and brought into a relationship with God himself. So what's the parallel? If you're a good Christian you grew up in Sunday school, you already know what the parallel is. How are we saved from death? How are we brought into the people of God? How are we brought into a relationship with God himself? We're to take shelter in a similar way to Rahab, but not under a scarlet cord of rope, but under the scarlet blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross. The sacrifice of God's own son that is the ultimate demonstration of a merciful, loving, kind God towards us. Because Jesus' blood, it secures our salvation. If your faith is in Jesus and what his death on the cross accomplished, you will be sheltered from the full force of death when it comes for you. His shed blood and resurrection three days later tells you your sin has been paid for that you have been forgiven and that you will receive eternal life with God if your faith is in what Jesus has done. Secondly, his shed blood secures our adoption into the family of God. The blood of Jesus is a payment, and it's a payment for our lives. He purchases our lives on the cross so that we can become children of God. For Rahab, she's saved and brought into a people where she's honoured and cared for and loved and esteemed rather than torn down and abused and insulted. Putting your faith in Jesus isn't just a vertical relationship with him. It's a horizontal relationship where you come into his worldwide family of believers, of spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and grandparents who love you, encourage you, pray for you, serve you, help you pursue more of God and whom you can love and serve in return. I'm pretty sure if I met Alice Cooper, I could ask him to pray for me and he would respond. He doesn't know me. We have nothing in common apart from one thing that we both believe in Jesus. And that binds us in a way that nothing else in my life would bind me to somebody like him. Or maybe it's more likely I'd meet Jason Robinson. Um, I'd probably just ask him for his autograph rather than for prayer. Maybe, maybe for both. The third thing it tells us, or the third thing Jesus' shed blood secures, is our relationship with God himself, that vertical relationship with him. Jesus' shed blood means your sin is paid for. Therefore, there's no longer any separation between you and God. So you can approach him with freedom and confidence. Putting our faith in Jesus means we receive his perfection. So God sees us as pure and blameless and spotless. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Rahab? to understand that that's how God viewed her. Rahab is a sign to us that God loves us no matter what is in our past. He accepts us despite what we might have done or we might have said, and he honors and delights over us, even though we really have nothing to offer him in return. So it's a really simple question, really simple question today, which is, where is your faith placed? To put your faith in the God of the Bible is to stop putting your faith 
in anything else to save you or satisfy you. When Rahab makes this switch, she says, I'm all in now with your God. She doesn't say, I'm all in, but I'll I'll keep a little bit with the Canaanite God. She's like, no, I'm all in with your God. You can't trust a bit of God and a bit of money, or a bit of God and a bit of my good behavior, or a bit of this God and a bit of that God. It's all your eggs in one basket, just like with Rahab. So where do you end up today? Do you need to come to Jesus for the first time? Putting your faith in what his death and resurrection achieves for you and coming into relationship with him and his people? Do you need to come back to him today? It's been a while away or you just feel like you're wandering about in life and it's not all about Jesus, it's about him and other things. But you come back and you remember, it's only by your blood, Jesus, that I'm saved. It's only by your blood that I'm purchased. It's only by your blood that I'm protected. And it's only by your blood that I know without a shadow of a doubt that you love me and you desire me. And you need to come to God afresh today and say, Jesus, your shed blood is powerful. Your shed blood gives me faith that everyone in my life can come to faith in you. And I want, to feel, I want that to fuel my prayer and I want to live a life of hope-filled mission that you can break in and save the lives of people that maybe I've written off. Maybe today you come back and go, they're not written off in God's eyes. He desires to save each and every person because he loves them. And he wants them to come into a relationship with him. Can we pray to end? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love and grace that you showed Rahab. The fact that she got included into the people of God and saved out of a a false religion that had tortured and abused her. Thank you, Lord, that her story speaks to us today. Lord, that it speaks of the fact that the door is open for us to come into relationship with you. That door doesn't close. Lord, I thank you that this story speaks to us and gives us faith that you are able to save because you love each and every person in the world, because you desire them to come into faith and into relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, the simplicity of that would stir our hearts to prayer, to mission. Lord, I pray for those people here today who wouldn't say that they're in a relationship with you yet. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would draw them to yourself this morning, that they would know that there's nothing in their past that cannot be forgiven. Lord Jesus, we look to your shed blood and we say it is powerful. It is able to cover a whole multitude of sins. And it is a sign that you love us and you want to purchase us to make us children of God. So Lord Jesus, we come uh, now in this moment. We want to praise you. We want to thank you for what you've given to us by your sacrifice. In your precious name. Amen. We're going to respond with some uh, songs of worship. So if you feel, if you're able to, do you want to stand to your feet and Ross and the band will lead us?